took us a long time to get here. It's going to take some time for us to work through this. Progress is not going to be even. We're going to have fits and starts. There's going to be a period where it's going to feel very bad still and very uncertain. And that's, again, why it's so important that we just keep moving. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. That clip you just heard was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner with a cheery outlook on CBS's Face the Nation. Today is Monday, April 6th. On the show, we're going to be talking about a lime green coat in London and what that could possibly have to do with pita bread in Egypt. But first, we have our Planet Money indicator, Laura. It is $301.8 million dollars. That's the money Egypt collected at the Suez Canal in February. So ships go through the canal and they pay a toll to use it. And all those tolls put together this February added up to a lot less than the same month last year. Revenues at the Suez were down 26% last February. They were $408 million. Wow, that's a lot of money to just have go away. Do we know why that's happening? Well, I started to look into it. It was sort of one of those things where to explain that one thing, you have to look somewhere else. And then that took me to someone else and somewhere else. So it's like the Internet, with, right? Right. We ended up with a, a real planet money global story. OK, start us someplace. OK, so we're going to start in Europe. We're starting with a woman named Beverly Walding. She's an actress in the UK. And she and her husband recently decided to sell their house in London, buy a cheaper place outside the city. They wanted to work less. They're 60. They thought they'd live in this cheaper house and live out the interest from their savings, which when they moved two years ago was about 6.5%. Now it's closer to 1%. Which is almost nothing. Right. So Beverly's feeling nervous. Every time she goes to the grocery store, she's nervous. Every time she goes out to a play and walks by stores. I saw a coat in a shop which I would have considered buying about two years ago. I wouldn't even think about it today. Tell me about the coat. Oh, it was lovely. It was wonderful, sort of lime green, gorgeous coat. <laughs> um, but I just left it and didn't bother. Well, I tried it on. It looked lovely. And then I put it back on the rack. And that was the end of it. Beverly says this move, that small decision right there that she made, she also made that decision about replacing her rugs and buying ice cream last week. It becomes an instinct. It's not worth it. It is not worth buying the coat for five minutes of pleasure that you've bought the coat, you've come home, you look lovely in it, and then you think, oh, I've just had a water bill. That's 200 pounds. I shouldn't have bought the coat. I don't want that worry. So it's easier and instinctive not to spend the money. Hannah, I think that is an instinct that we're pretty much all honing right this second. Like even my own family, last night we thought twice about going out for Chinese food. It's a typical thing we might do on a Sunday night. And we're still employed. We're both employed. But we thought twice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this isn't to say that Beverly is in the sorriest situation in the world or something. The point is kind of that she's not. She's pretty typical. There are millions of Beverly's across Europe doing exactly the same thing. And that right there is a fact that has not been lost on Morten Engelstoft in Switzerland. So who's Morten Engelstoft? Who is he? He is the chief operating officer of Maersk Line. 
which is that shipping company that has, I think their boxes are orange or red. I feel like I see Maersk boxes on trains and stuff like that. Big block letters. You see them. They're coming in on big ships and into ports. They ship loads and loads of stuff to Europe every month. Well, it's, it's essentially uh, all, all kinds of commodities that you can almost imagine. Uh, if we look at what the consumer uh, buys in Europe, uh, then uh, a very large part of what is uh, being bought and consumed actually are manufactured uh, in Asia. All the shirts, all the shoes, all the rugs, toys made in Asia, Maersk ships them to Europe. Very large uh, quantities of various goods are being transported anywhere from um, electronics, furniture, car parts, and uh, a number of other consumer goods. Like lime green coats. Right, exactly. So Beverly doesn't buy that coat. Engelstuff notices all the Beverlys not buying coats and shirts and shoes and TVs and couches means things are slow for Maersk. So now Beverly's feeling a little bit nervous about money, and so I guess is Engelstoft. Exactly, which means he has less to spend, but he still has to pay for all his staff and pay for oil. He has to pay to go through the Suez Canal, like we were talking about before. Right, in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. So you think about our globe right there, Asia to Europe, going through the Suez, that makes the most sense, right? But it costs money to go that way. Just the shipping toll part, it's the same as if I drive on the New Jersey Turnpike. I expect to go through a booth and pay some money. Right. And in the same way, Egypt collects tolls, Engelstuff says, for a large ship, it can be $700,000, which has Engelstuff making a decision he has never made before. Uh, Here in, I'd say, over the past four or five months, uh, we're now making the calculations uh, of the costs between uh, sailing from Asia to Europe uh, through the Suez Canal uh, compared to sailing south of Africa. And uh, now it's it's uh, very clear that there are significant savings uh, to be found by sailing south of Africa instead of sailing uh, through the Suez Canal. So you're changing your entire route. It's more or less the same ports that we are calling, uh, but instead of sailing through the Suez Canal, we're sailing south of Africa. I, I certainly would call it a very radical idea because if you look at a at a map, uh, you, you would uh, easily see that it's almost illogical to sail uh, the much longer uh, distance uh, south of Africa rather than taking the the shortcut uh, through the Suez Canal. Have you ever done that before? No, we have not. So, Hannah, how long does that take if he goes around the Horn of Africa like that? It takes an extra week. So it takes 22 days normally from Asia to Europe, and now it takes his ships closer to a full month. Um, and it's strange, you know, I mean, it's like if you needed to go from New York to Chicago, but you decided to go there by going around Georgia or something. Like you didn't pa- pack a map or something like that. Right, yeah. right. Like you're going the wrong way. It doesn't make sense. But fuel is cheap and the Suez Canal is expensive. So for Maersk, it sort of strangely makes the most sense right now. OK, so so far in this story, Beverly doesn't buy her coat. And there are millions of Beverly's out there who aren't buying the stuff they usually would. And Ingolstadt is losing money. And so he decides to skip the shortcut through the Suez and take the scenic route around Africa, right? Exactly. Which brings us to our next stop. Hey, Hannah. Yeah, Laura. Where are we? 
You are now transported into a bakery in Cairo, Egypt. Ooh. So can I get one of those things that's covered in almonds and honey up there on the left? Y- you can get cheap bread here. This is this is how this is all connected. So we've got coats, ships, and now we're moving on to bread. You know how they collected that toll at the Suez, right? Right. So if ships aren't going through the Suez, they're not paying the tolls, and the Suez is one of the major sources of revenue for the Egyptian economy. It's one of the big three. And last year it brought in more than $5 billion, which is a lot. And right now it's down, it was our indicator, it's down 26%. Exactly. So that's money that normally goes into the government's budget, and one of the things the government spends money on is wheat. Just plain old wheat? Yeah, Egypt's the world's biggest wheat importer. I bet you didn't know that. I did not. And the government um, actually subsidizes the wheat. So all over Egypt, you can get pita. It's called baladi for about five cents. It's, you know, the normal bread is about five times that. And this Cairo bakery is one of the places you can get this subsidized bread. The oven's manager, Sayed Saad, is in the bakery right here. And he buys his wheat from the government, and he makes more than 26 loaves a day. Our producer told us he was kind of a character. He's been working there since he was 12, and he's 52 now. He says he'll work here until he dies. Saad says flour is available. There hasn't been a single day that we didn't receive flour. They stopped sending flour. We shut down the bakery. People go hungry. This one five-cent bread is what's sustaining the people because anyone can buy it. So our producer told us people were lining up to buy this bread, and they were all saying there would be mass hunger if they didn't get this bread for cheap. Um, and I, you know, to be clear, Laura, the Egyptian government saying it's totally committed to continuing to subsidize wheat. Um, there's also U.S. subsidies for wheat exports to Egypt. Um, but for the Egyptian government, you know, available funds are dwindling. So how are they going to keep it going? They're going to borrow. Like in the U.S., they're just sort of lining up for some deficit spending here for a while. Right. It's a stimulus plan, a $3 billion stimulus plan. And then they're just going to cross their fingers that after that, all the Beverly's in Europe stop being so nervous and start buying again. And the ships stop sailing around Africa and come back through the Suez and things get better. So we've gone from a British woman's lime green coat, well, the one she left on the rack anyway, to this Egyptian pita, which I really want some of. I got to tell you, Hannah, that was really cool and very fun. Thank you for that. I'd like to check back in, if we could, on a statistic from last week. It's a little bit less fun than an audio trip to an Egyptian bakery. It's maybe because it's too familiar and also because it's really personally painful for a lot of people. It's unemployment. Laura, you're talking about the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that report last Friday. They released the March figure for joblessness in the U.S., and it shows unemployment has hit 8.5%. Yeah, and a lot of our people, Hannah, right away on our Twitter feed, we're twitter.com slash planetmoney, and on the blog, every time that number comes out, they want to know about a different government number. It's called U6. It's also from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what U6 does is it counts everyone who tells a survey taker that he or she is available for full-time work, even if they've gotten discouraged and stopped actively looking. Or maybe they've settled for part-time work or something? Yeah, like they've taken what they can get. They're still U6. And U6 could count people like one of our listeners, Brandon Mitchell. He's a freelancer who lives in Virginia, and he consults with companies that buy great big computer systems, like if you're going to buy a million-dollar enterprise 
something or another. You might call in a guy like Brandon Mitchell, but he says the work has just absolutely dried up in the last few months, just hit the brakes and gone. Brandon says he wouldn't call himself unemployed, and he knows that freelancers don't usually get unemployment benefits. For myself, I'm only one quarter employed right now compared to my normal levels, but when you look at it from the grand scheme, if anybody asked me if I was employed, I would say I'm self-employed, and therefore, when they look at the numbers, I get counted as fully employed. So you have right now 25% of the work you would normally have? Yeah. Last year, I'll be working a full 40 hours a week, and right now, I'm just happy to be able to get 10 hours per week. That's truly incredible, Brandon. It's it's a lot fewer than I would, than I would prefer. You, you can't apply for unemployment benefits? No, and I think there are a lot of people that complain about that, and from my side, I look at it and say, if you're self-employed, you should be used to being ready for being underemployed in some way. Um, so it's I expect that I'm not going to be able to have all the unemployment benefits and that stuff, and so I hopefully have saved up for a rainy day for that. What prompted you to move out of association with one big company and into being a one-man shop? Um, about four or five years ago, I was laid off. And so I had already planned at that point that I was kind of ready to be my own boss, and they laid me off on a Friday, and the next Monday they called me up and asked me if I was set up independent yet because they were ready to bring me back. So people, people, we're talking about this changing American workforce. People get laid off and start working for themselves. Right. Like every time I've been laid off, and it's happened to me two or three times since I moved to New York, I've first thing I think is, can I work for myself? Can I scrounge up some kind of freelance? The number that you usually see for this is about 30% is part of what we call the gig economy, which means there are people who are working part-time, temporary, freelance, whatever they're doing, they're working without sort of a job job, so to speak. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, me too, and not so long ago. After I talked to Brandon Mitchell, I caught up with an activist for the self-employed named Sarah Horowitz. She's the founder of the Freelancers Union. It offers health insurance and advice for freelance workers. And she's a genius. She's She's a a past winner of the MacArthur Genius Award. Yeah, that's when they give you that call and they say, here's your several hundred thousand dollars (laughs) or whatever it is. We like geniuses. Yeah, we like them. And here's one for you right here. Horowitz says she has a couple of big issues. She says that we don't have a good safety net for self-employed people, and that's in part because we don't keep very good track of them. The Bureau of Labor Statistics may capture something, but they're not capturing this total picture and seeing that people are going back and forth. And when they, what we need to look at is when income drops to a certain level, people need to have something to supplement that. So, and the reason is, if you're an employee, you don't want to just go on welfare. You'd like to collect some unemployment that helps you through while you look for another job. Now, right now, self-employed people don't contribute to unemployment system, right? They don't pay in, so they don't get anything back out. That's sort of the operating theory. That's the operating theory, as you are saying. For unemployment, the theory is that you pay in and then you collect as an insurance, as a matter of insurance. And you would like to change that. You would like to change that. Yes, because what happens is that freelancers... You know, a graphic artist can do a job for a gig for eight months, and an employee can do that same job for eight months. When the freelancer's gig is up, there's nothing. And the reason why people should care, aside from just because it's the right thing to do, is we don't want to see a third of our workforce have to go on welfare because there's nothing in between them, their savings, and welfare. 
that just the same reasons in the 1930s to create unemployment are exactly the same as what we have now. But what we need to do is start to think about what is the next system of unemployment. We don't just have to blindly plug people into this current one. Now, Hannah, Sarah Horowitz talks about the freelancers union looking to pilot a new kind of unemployment protection fund, she calls it. She says it's or she describes it as sort of halfway between a 401k plan and kind of a savings account. So freelancers could pay into it with pre-tax dollars. And the interesting thing to me, the hard part, is that she says it might actually include a contribution from the government, at least as the freelancers union envisions it. So the the government's going to sign up for a whole new program for freelancers? It's I know. It sounds like a tough sell just now, but I am interested in hearing more about it. So I'm going to try to pedal out to her office in Brooklyn, I think sometime over the next week or so, and get some more details on that. And also on this very interesting new 401k plan they're about to start that she says has something to do with behavioral economics. So we'll see. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Laura. Um, and thank all of you, wherever you are on the employment spectrum. You've got a home on our blog. We're at npr.org slash money. We'd love to see you there. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. We'll be back podcasting on Wednesday. Trump.